Good evening. Nicaragua votes to leave the OAS after President Daniel Ortega wins in a landslide. We hear from an unofficial election observer. The trial of Kyle Rittenhouse goes to the jury, and a new candidate throws a hat in the ring in the race for governor of New York. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. Nicaragua's National Assembly voted today to ask President Daniel Ortega to renounce the Organization of American States Charter and permanently leave the regional forum. Nicaragua's Foreign Minister, Dennis Moncada. The permanent council of the OAS has had its proposal for a number of months now and has operated in this interventionist manner. The Nicaraguan delegation did not agree with the convoking of this extraordinary session of the council, nor the agenda of the meeting, and is even less in accordance with the proposed resolution which was discussed by the permanent council. In the end, the said resolution was approved. We have clearly established that our government does not recognize that resolution. We reject and condemn it, and we consider it illegal, including all of the procedures that led to it. And that was Dennis Moncada. On Friday, the OAS adopted a resolution criticizing Nicaragua's presidential elections, panning President Daniel Ortega's electoral victory over the weekend as unfair and urging future action. On Sunday, Ortega and his Sandinista ruling party won 75 percent of the vote in elections, with more than 60 percent turning out to vote. But United States President Joe Biden termed it a pantomime election and was that was neither free nor fair and most certainly not democratic. In related news, the State Department also announced uh, sanctions against the Central American nation that came out today. The relationship between Nicaragua and the United States has been roiling U.S. foreign policymakers for decades. But in more information coming from the State Department, more news following the story that somehow the Russia had launched a rocket at a satellite as part of a defensive test, an attempt to shoot a satellite out of the sky. Russian officials rejected accusations today that came from the State Department that they endangered astronauts aboard the International Space Station by conducting a weapons test. And uh, U.S. officials accused Russia of destroying an old satellite with a missile and what they called a reckless and irresponsible strike. And we heard earlier today from Ned Price, the spokesperson for the State Department. The Russian Federation recklessly conducted a destructive satellite test of a direct ascent anti-satellite missile against one of its own satellites. The test has so far generated over 1,500 pieces of trackable orbitable debris and hundreds of thousands of pieces of smaller orbital debris that now threaten the interests of all nations. In addition, this test will significantly increase the risk to astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station, as well as to other human spaceflight activities. Russia's dangerous and irresponsible behavior jeopardizes the long-term sustainability of outer space and clearly demonstrates that Russia's claims of opposing the weaponization of space are disingenuous and hypocritical. The United States will work with our allies and partners to respond to Russia's irresponsible act. This is something that before the test we had raised repeatedly uh, with senior officials in Moscow to underscore uh, the irresponsibility that such a maneuver would entail for the international community. And that's Ned Price. He's press secretary for the U.S. Department of State. 
And with international politics uh, more and more seeming like the pre-1989 Cold War struggle between the USSR and the United States, the vote by the OAS Permanent Council, there are 25 nations that voted in favor of the resolution, seven member states abstained, including Mexico, Honduras, and Bolivia, to uh, basically accuse uh, Nicaragua of running elections that were not free, fair, or transparent and lacked democratic legitimacy. But senior editor at Black Agenda Report, Margaret Kimberly, was in Nicaragua last Sunday to unofficially observe the elections. She says the elections were as free and fair as any United States election. Transparent and open election. Uh, the opposition groups who were backed by the U.S. tried to dissuade the public from voting, but the turnout was good, more than 60 percent, comparable to what we had here around this time last year. The group I was with, we were a delegation from Black Alliance for Peace, seven of us, and we traveled to the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua. That region is where most of the African-descended people live, in addition to some indigenous people and mestizos. But we saw people able to vote as they pleased. The ballot showed all candidates. The opposition parties campaigning had election signage all over the country. We saw people able to vote for whomever they wanted, but the end result was a resounding victory for the FSLN. That's the Sandinistas party with some 75 percent of the votes. The United States take uh, issue with that. They, I'm looking right now at their uh, press statement from the Secretary of State of the United States saying that Nicaraguans are denied their ability to vote in free and fair elections. What's going on with that? That's just a lie. The people who are in jail have violated Nicaragua's very sensible laws. There was a coup attempt in 2018 sponsored by the U.S. All the people killed, by the way, were Sandinistas. After the government put down this attempt, they passed an amnesty law. They gave amnesty to anyone who made a commitment not to interfere with the government again. Some of these people also take money from the United States government. Nicaragua has a law that says you can't run for office if you take money from a foreign government. In this country, only U.S. citizens can make campaign contributions, so there's nothing wrong with this law. But these are people who violated these laws, which are sensible. Some of them were never presidential candidates, so it's just not true that any presidential candidate was kept from running. There were six presidential candidates, including President Daniel Ortega. The U.S. now is pursuing their belief that this was not a fair election, and they're now going to implement sanctions against Nicaragua. Sanctions are a war by other means. And people in this country, if we're anti-imperialist or even people who believe in ethics and international law, we must first oppose U.S. sanctions. And that punishes people, the Nicaraguan people, because they dare to have a government that the U.S. doesn't like. And this is a war crime. We're talking about collective punishment against a civilian population. And people need to know what sanctions are, what they do. When the U.S. sanctions a country, it's not just a matter of Nicaragua can't do banking with the U.S. It also means that the U.S. will sanction any country that violates the U.S. sanctions. In fact, they become international, and that's why sanctions are so devastating all around the world. But the goal is to make war against a country without actually sending troops, which the U.S. has done in the past. There were Marines in Nicaragua in the 20s and 30s. So what's going to happen now? No, of course, it's horrible. And it's something that uh, people of conscience 
must speak out against and can't allow ourselves to be fooled into criticizing Ortega. Um, that's not um, it's not our business, frankly, what issues Nicaraguans have with each other. That's for them to figure out. But the problem with countries like Nicaragua is the people who oppose are also doing so on behalf of the United States. And that is something that people must keep in mind when they hear anything about how the country is run. Margaret Kimberly, senior editor at Black Agenda Report. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Republican senators grilled Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas during a Judiciary Committee hearing today, criticizing the department's handling of migrants at the southern border and Afghan evacuees. Texas Republican Ted Cruz accused Homeland Security of keeping children in what he called Biden cages, a swipe at Democrats who criticized former President Trump's snatching of children from parents at the border. And Senator Chuck Grassley said Mayorkas was running a fan club to abolish the immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, known to most as ICE. But committee chairman Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois says Mayorkas inherited a department riddled in chaos from the Trump administration. Mayorkas, for his part, said there's no doubt the immigration system is broken. We are addressing irregular migration and working to rebuild a safe, orderly, and humane immigration system. The challenge of doing so is made more difficult by the ongoing impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and a system that was decimated by the prior administration. We must invest in addressing root causes, creating legal pathways, and ensuring swift adjudication of asylum claims. The immigration system, though, is fundamentally broken, a fact that everyone agrees upon. Congress must pass legislation to fix it. In the meantime, we are taking action within our authorities. We are enforcing our immigration laws, including those of accountability and humanitarian relief. And that's Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas earlier today. According to Customs and Border Protection, an estimated 1.7 million undocumented immigrants attempted to enter the United States this year, the most in 61 years. And in more national news, the jury began deliberating today at the murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse after listening to dueling portrayals of him as a wannabe soldier who went looking for trouble at a or a concerned citizen who came under attack while trying to protect property. Defense attorney Mark Richards. Kyle shot Joseph Rosenbaum to stop a threat to his person. And I'm glad he shot him because if Joseph Rosenbaum had got that gun, I don't for a minute believe he wouldn't have used it against somebody else. He was irrational and crazy. That's Mark Richards. That's uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's attorney. The case went to the anonymous 12-member jury after Rittenhouse himself, in an unusual move, was allowed by Judge Bruce Schroeder to draw the numbered slips of paper from a raffle drum that determined which of the 18 people who sat in judgment during the trial would decide his fate and which ones would be dismissed as alternates. The task is usually performed by a court clerk, not the defendant. With the jury watching, Rittenhouse selected six pieces of paper from the drum, each bearing a number that corresponded to a juror. A court official then read aloud the numbers of the jurors being dismissed, 11, 58, 14, 45, 9, and 52. The names of the jurors have not been made public. As the jury deliberated, dozens of protesters, some for Rittenhouse, some again, stood outside the courthouse. A small cardboard cutout meant to represent Rittenhouse was erected outside with the figure bearing a convict killer Kyle shirt. Another person carried a sign that read Heel Kenosha. 
The uh, shirt was spelled with K's, as in Ku Klux Klan. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, who faced criticism over his response to the Kenosha protests in 2020, urged calm as the jury deliberated. In an article in today's edition of Counterpunch, available at counterpunch.org, titled American Fascism on Trial in Kenosha, investigative reporter Paul Street notes that three trials, that of the killers of Ahmed Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia, a civil lawsuit brought against organizers of a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the Kenosha trial of Kyle Rittenhouse are occurring at the same time. But Street says it's not defendants that are on trial, but the system that created them. Kyle is kind of a pathetic character in a lot of ways. And obviously, he didn't come into Kenosha with an AR-15, by the way, with a safety on off, loaded with 30 full metal jacket bullets just to protect the used car dealerships. This kid came up there and he immediately hooked up with a member of the Boogaloo Boys, a guy named Ryan Balsh. And the Boogaloo Boys are a neo-Nazi network that wants to spark a genocidal race war. Kyle later partied and made white supremacist hand signals with the Proud Boys, which is an openly uh, fascist organization whose members go around with T-shirts that say things like six million Jews killed in the Holocaust wasn't enough. And Pinochet did nothing wrong. We can overfocus, I think, a bit on this kind of sad and confused and messed up teenager because he acted, Rittenhouse did as a tool of a fascist movement that was a lot bigger and certainly a lot more organized than him. And furthermore, he did so with encouragement and protection from the police, the Wisconsin National Guard. When you think about it, even with the president of the United States, and a lot of people don't know this, Anthony Huber, one of the people killed, one of the protesters killed, his family has a civil lawsuit that was filed in late August against the city of Kenosha, the Kenosha police, the Kenosha County police, and the city government of Kenosha for collaborating with white nationalist paramilitaries like the Boogaloo Boys, like Proud Boys, like the Kenosha Guard, which was this impromptu sort of fascist militia armed called into being by a former city, Kenosha City Councilman. He actually first called it after the George Floyd protests in May, and then he re-upped his violent rhetoric after the Jacob Blake protests. This lawsuit is very interesting because that's sort of your classic fascist formula, is this overlap and coordination and cooperation between armed gendarmes in the police and extra-legal paramilitaries on the outside. And that was clearly going on on August 25th, 2020. The, the cops were encouraging Kyle. They were protecting Kyle and his fellow fascist paramilitaries. That's kind of what's going on. It's an interesting moment. There are three trials going on right now. There's the civil trial against the instigators at Charlottesville carnage of 2017. And there's another trial going on where white extra legal armed thugs killed uh, the young black man, Ahmad Arbery, down in uh, Brunswick, Georgia and to have all of these going on at the same time. It seemed to be like a division between the uh, fascists and then the ones who were KKK oriented. And then you sometimes had a third way, depending on the leadership that would try and unite the two of them. It's no mistake that Kyle was a very big Trump fan. It's no mistake that Trump immediately defended him after the shooting. And by the way, it's no mistake that Donald Trump, who I consider, and in my next book I talk about, that Trump really quite chillingly made a campaign stop on the very last night of the 2020 election race in Kenosha. And he wasn't looking for new votes. He already had Kenosha. 
that he was there as a kind of a statement of violence, I think, to come. And we know now that he was already planning response to an election loss that would not be not pretty and it would be violent and would involve uh, paramilitaries in the street. It turns out January 6th, we're finding out just how top down it really was. And he's already thinking about those things. So Trump was never quite oh, no. as stupid as we thought he was. The right wing is not as stupid as sometimes we think it is. And in fact, they're scheming to steal back full national power, particularly at the state level, not only at the state level, they know what they're doing. And uh, they're not they're not stupid about it. It was a multi-pronged assault on the 2020 election. And the January 6th stuff was sort of the last ditch Hail Mary. They came very close. I think if the election had been much closer, they might have been able to pull it off. And I'm not sure they won't pull it off in uh, 24 and 25 with no small help from a very dismal appeasement-oriented neoliberal Democratic Party, of course. Author Paul Street has an article in today's edition of Counterpunch, available at counterpunch.org, titled American Fascism on Trial in Kenosha. Street is also on the board of directors of the group Refuse Fascism. Rittenhouse shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum, 36, Anthony Huber, 26, and wounded Gage Krosenkrutz, now 28. Meanwhile, in Brunswick, Georgia, prosecutors rested their case today in the trial of three white men charged with chasing and killing Ahmed Arbery on February 23, 2020. It came after the jury saw graphic photos of the shotgun wounds that punched a gaping hole in his chest and unleashed ble- bleeding that stained his white T-shirt entirely red. Prosecutors called 23 witnesses during eight days of testimony. They concluded with Dr. Edmund Donahue, the state medical examiner who performed the autopsy on Arbery's body. It was my opinion that the shot to the center of the chest and the grazing gunshot wound to the wrist occurred at the same time, meaning that the hand was in front of the chest and was struck first and then uh, it entered the body. It was my opinion that the second shot was a complete miss and did not enter any part of the body and that the third shot involved the left chest and axilla. And that is uh, Mr. Don, Dr. Donahue. He's the state medical examiner, and he works with the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley said defense attorneys would begin their cases Wednesday. Father and son Greg and Travis McMichael armed themselves and pursued Arbery in a pickup truck after spotting him running in their neighborhood. Their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, joined the chase and took a cell phone video of Travis McMichael shooting Arbery. All three men are charged with murder and other crimes. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In related news, Democratic Representative Hakeem Jeffries was wide, has uh, come under wide, widely come under attack on social media after calling for 18-year-old alleged Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse to be jailed while his trial is still pending. Jeffries tweeted, lock up Kyle Rittenhouse and throw away the key as the alleged shooter's trial was airing live on television. The criticism didn't stop Jeffries from unloading his own critique on Representative Louis Gossert, a right-wing Texas Republican, who posted his own video attacking Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with a sword. Well, no decision has been made with respect to how to hold Representative Gosar accountable, but it's clear he needs to be held accountable for his disgusting outrageous, violent threat perpetrated against one of our colleagues uh, here, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, as well as the president 
uh, of the United States of America. But this underscores an incredibly important point right now. House Democrats are delivering for the people in meaningful ways related to lowering costs, cutting taxes, and creating millions of good-paying jobs. The House Republican Conference is all about chaos, crisis, confusion, corruption, and controversy. They are trying to sanction members and strip them of committees, not because of outrageous violent threats, but because they supported a handful of them a bipartisan infrastructure agreement that will make a positive difference in the lives of everyday Americans. This is what the House Republican Conference under Kevin McCarthy's leadership is all about right now. They're out of control. They care nothing about the well-being of everyday Americans, the middle class, and those who aspire to be part of it. Nothing. It's all about the acquisition of power. And that's Hakeem Jeffries. Meanwhile, House Republicans have called for a censure of Jeffries. Jeffries has often referred to some Republicans as crooks, liars and insurrectionists. And President Joe Biden signed into law a $1 trillion infrastructure bill at the White House yesterday that drew Democrats and Republicans who pushed the legislation through a deeply divided U.S. Congress. Today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer joined Mayor Bill de Blasio at the mayor's daily briefing to tout the bill and what it's expected to do for New York. We've already seen one result. Because of this legislation, because of the dollars we're sending New York, the governor said that neither the MTA nor our commuter rails will suffer service cutbacks or fare increases in the foreseeable future. That's a huge thing for us, but it goes way beyond that because we don't want to just maintain. We want to make it better. This money will, this, this bill will have dollars to change the signal system in our subways, making trains run on time and more reliable, fewer breakdowns and tunnels which drive people crazy. It'll have money for major new projects that we need. It'll have for Gateway. I'm very confident now Gateway will move forward and get completed because of the dollars in this bill. It will help us to help cover the Cross Bronx Expressway, something near and dear to my heart, the mayor's heart, uh, Richie Torres, great congressman, and so many others in the South Bronx community. I had a plan for electric buses for the MTA. That's included. It's called a Green New Wheel, and that's there too. And one more thing I would say. It represents a four-letter word, folks, and I'm from Brooklyn, so don't get worried. J-O-B-S, jobs. More jobs, more good-paying jobs, more union jobs. And that's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. And today, public advocate Jumani Williams announced in a YouTube video and new campaign website that he's running for New York governor next year. Williams was reelected public advocate at the beginning of the month. He's been in that role since 2019. Before that, he was a member of the city council representing Brooklyn. Well, my name is Jumani Williams. I'm currently the public advocate, city of New York. I'm a first generation American Brooklynite. My family's from the Caribbean island of Grenada. I should first elect official in the country known to have Tourette syndrome, public school baby, community organizer by training, and I'm running for governor of the state of New York. This is an important time as we begin to recover and renew from the pandemic that we're in right now. In order to do that, we can't just use the same structures 
and the same ways of doing things that we have for a very long time. <laughs> the Democrats say that they believe in something that's different than the Republican Party. Uh, but very often they're trying to be Republican light uh, instead of actually showing the vision that they have. Uh, Williams had formed an exploratory committee weeks ago looking into a run for governor. He'd been considering running for the state's top job before Governor Andrew Cuomo announced his resignation. Williams ran for lieutenant governor in 2018 against current governor Kathy Hochul. The two will now face off again in the Democratic primary along with State Attorney General Letitia James. Mayor Bill de Blasio has also heavily indicated he's considering a run of his own. And finally, Michelle Wu was sworn in today as Boston's first woman and first person of color elected mayor in the city's long history. The swearing in of the city's first Asian-American mayor came two weeks after Wu won the city's mayoral election. Before Wu, Boston had elected only white men as mayor. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and will support the Constitution thereof, and will support the Constitution thereof. So help me God. So help me God. Boston was founded on a revolutionary promise that things don't have to be as they always were. That we can chart a new path for families now and for generations to come, grounded in justice and opportunity. And we can take steps to raise us all up to that promise together. Boston, our charge is clear. We need everyone to join us in the work of doing the big and the small, getting City Hall out of City Hall into our neighborhoods and embracing the possibility of this city. The reason to make a Boston for everyone is because we need everyone for Boston right now. We have so much work to do and it will take all of us to get it done. So let's get to work. Wu 36 takes over for a fellow Democrat, former acting mayor Kim Janey, who is Boston's first woman and first black resident to serve in, but who is not elected to the top post. One of Wu, uh, Wu's top campaign promises is to create a fair, free public transit system. Wu has said the proposal would strengthen the city's economy, address climate change, and help those who take the bus or subway to school or work. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>